Not just a good morning, but happy 4th of July. Happy Independence Day to everybody. Uh, you can tell it's 4th of July because I'm wearing a shirt that's too small for me. You can't tell because we're online only today, but it's the only shirt I had that was red, white, and blue. So uh, enjoy my my ultimately too small Pearl Snap shirt. Uh, we're, we're being festive over here at the Brumman House today. Uh, and, and just, it is 4th of July, and I wanted to start out by saying, and I was reminded of this in the news just recently with some news out of out of China that uh, that I'm really thankful to God that that we're in a country that allows us to to do this, uh, a country that allows us to worship publicly and to worship freely our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we're also reminded today that that many millions of our brothers and sisters in Christ do not live under these kinds of circumstances politically in terms of their religious freedoms. But even though we as Christians around the world and throughout history can't all enjoy political and religious freedom as we do in our country today in this life, every Christian on earth can enjoy an even better freedom, and that is the freedom from sin. That's where we're going to go today in our passage. That's what our passage is all about today. In fact, last week, I think Chris did a wonderful job uh, unpacking uh, and teaching from the last half of, of Hebrews chapter 9. I really enjoyed his sermon. Uh, I really enjoyed his honesty about when he first kind of came to, to uh, church uh, with, I guess, the Reikleys, and, and they were singing Nothing But the Blood, the song that we just sang. And, uh, and he was kind of weirded out. And I loved how uh, last week he had us all singing Nothing But the Blood, uh, which is a hymn that's based on Hebrews chapter 9, which was the chapter he was in last week, and we're going to see a lot of it in today's passage as well. Uh, but he, he was kind of told that story to remind us of how strange our Christian beliefs can, can sound to a non-Christian. I mean, oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Uh, Robert Lowry, you might have seen this at the bottom of the screen while we we're singing, but... Uh, uh, this hymn is attributed to Robert Lowry. He wrote it uh, actually in 1876, and that was exactly 100 years after the original Independence Day in 1776 that we're celebrating today. He wrote it in 1876, and the hymn really speaks of, of all sorts of wonderful things uh, that are related uh, to our salvation in Christ. It talks about the washing away of sin and making us whole again, of our cleansing and our pardon, of our our hope and peace and righteousness, all obtained through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. Uh, Lowry wrote these words, and I don't think they were in the, the version we sang. They're in a separate uh, uh, verse, but he wrote, Not of works, tis all of grace, nothing but the blood of Jesus. And these words echo the truth of, of today's passage that the blood of Christ is the only antidote for human sin. It's the only thing that can erase our sin, that can wash away our sin and leave us, as Scripture puts it, white as snow. Um, years ago, I was having a late night conversation with an old friend. And we had grown up together and he knew, you know, as much as anyone can know of you know, just a portion of all the hurtful and horrible things that I had done and said in my adolescence and in my early adulthood. He had kind of been right there with me uh, through those years. 
And so he asked me that night whether I still felt guilty or ashamed of those things that I had done and said and thought over all those years. And uh, I remember looking him straight in the eye uh, and explaining that I did not feel guilty or ashamed because I had found forgiveness in Christ. And I got to just explain the good news of Jesus Christ to him. And I'm, I'm pretty sure he knew that I was telling the truth in terms of not feeling guilty or ashamed for, for those past sins. But I think that truth probably sounded too good to be true to him. But anyway, he simply replied by saying, I don't believe you. And, and folks, I want more than anything for my friend who I'm speaking of, uh, for all my friends, for everyone to experience God's forgiveness by trusting in Christ. But as I prayerfully await this salvation, I, I want my friend to see the freedom of forgiveness in and through my life. And that means leaving the burden of my sins at the foot of the cross each and every day. As Christians, we must live out the truth of the gospel, this good news, the freedom from sin that we have by God's amazing grace towards us through believing in Jesus Christ. Otherwise, the, the people around us, they'll doubt our salvation. They'll, they'll doubt the goodness of our news. They'll doubt, ultimately, our Savior. We are freed from sin by the sacrifice of Christ. So then let's live like free people. Today's passage in the first half of chapter 10, it, it helps us to, to do this, to live like free people by removing two major obstacles to living in the freedom we have in Christ. And the first one is not understanding the insufficiency of our own sacrifices to free us from sin. Our own works, our own efforts, our own sacrifices. We need to realize that those are insufficient to free us from bondage to sin. And we see that in the animal sacrifices under the old covenant that we're going to look at today, that we've been looking at for weeks. And then the second obstacle is not understanding and appreciating the sufficiency, the absolute sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice to make us free from sin. If we miss that, that will be a barrier to us living in light of that freedom. So first, we must acknowledge that our sacrifices cannot free us from sin. Nothing we can do can do that. And we see this especially in verses 1 through 4 in our passage. So look with me at those first four verses. The author writes, For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer, that's the priests, continually, year by year, those can never make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible, he writes, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. This passage is referring to the, the Israelite priests, the Levitical priests, offering animal sacrifices according to the law of Moses under that old covenant, that old Mosaic covenant that we've been talking about for the last couple months. And here in this passage, we see the difference between sacrifices as reminders of sin 
and sacrifice for the removal of sin. And this is a really important distinction, and it helps us to better understand the Old Testament, to better understand the Old Covenant and the sacrificial system and priesthood that went along with it. We, we must understand this distinction between reminder and the removal of sin. So animal sacrifices were never able, they were never meant to be able to remove our sin ultimately. The law of Moses required these sacrifices, but they could not perfect us, the author to the Hebrews says, or, or purify us or purge our sins from our lives to expunge our sins. So then it, it raises the really great question that what is the point of the sacrificial system? Why did all those animals die over so many years? And this is the answer. Animal sacrifices were simply reminders of sin. As our author points out, they were offered continually year by year. And he includes in that specifically the Day of Atonement. That was one day a year where the high priest would offer sacrifices for their, his sin and then the sin of the people. But it's this continuation year after year of these offerings that they were a shadow, the author says, of the good things to come, which were the new covenant blessings made available through Christ. All right, so these animal sacrifices in and of themselves were never able to free us from sin. Uh, on the one hand, I personally am glad that the sacrificial system was fulfilled through the, through the better sacrifice of Christ, right? We as Christians, as New Testament believers, don't sacrifice animals, okay, uh, to, to acknowledge our sin and to throw ourselves on the mercy of God to forgive us. Uh, on, on the other hand, uh, even though I'm glad that we're not, you know, having to sacrifice animals, uh, Chris pointed this out last week, and I thought it was really a great point. He pointed out that unlike the ancient Israelites, we today aren't constantly reminded of the horrific nature of our sin by the literal baths of blood that were flowing out from the temple altar. And therefore, we tend to take our sin much less serious at times. Strangely enough, even ancient Israelites took their sin less serious at times, despite that constant bloody reminder of the horrific nature of sin uh, and its penalty. Okay, but, but especially today, when we're not reminded constantly about sin and how heinous it is, we tend to, to minimize sin. And we tend to minimize God in our minimization of, of sin. We minimize his holiness. But it's, it's not like God left us hanging as New Testament believers, as members of the church, okay? He's given us reminders of sin, even though he ended that sacrificial system that was pointing forward to Christ some 2,000 years ago. But he gave us what? He gave us his Holy Spirit to, to uh, reveal sin in our lives, to convict us of sin. He gave us his word, scripture, the completed canon, we, the Bible, uh, so that it can show us. Uh, James says to look into God's perfect law is like to look into a mirror, uh, and it shows us the things that are wrong with us. It shows us the sin and, 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 and the, the uh, temptations and weaknesses and, and these different things that are affecting us so that we can be transformed out of that, so that we can be uh, fixed by God's grace. Uh, but that's one of the reasons God has given us his word, is to, is to reveal sin in our lives and in the world. He's given us his people in the church, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, all to help us understand the, the absolute ugliness of sin in our lives, in the world, uh, 
And it's those three agents in particular. We don't have the sacrificial system. That is correct. But we do have those three agents of God's grace, not only to point out our sins, but also to remind us of our freedom in Christ, our freedom from sin. Uh, as Christians, we, we can still benefit from the sacrificial system by reading about it and letting it shape our understanding we, we can't be New Testament-only Christians. We need to also look back at the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, to that sacrificial system that was necessary for a holy God to dwell amongst unholy people. And, and we have to let that shape our understanding of the absolute uh, ugliness of sin, but also of the beauty of God's grace and our freedom in Christ. Those sacrifices were never meant to save people, but they were reminders that as Romans puts it, the wages of sin is death. And, and, they, and those sacrifices looked forward to the ultimate price that would be paid by God for our freedom to, to redeem us from bondage to sin. So here's just a simple question for application this morning to help us consider the extent to which we are living out our freedom from sin in Christ. And, and the question is, are we allowing ourselves to be exposed by God's word? And I could say the same for, for God's you know, people. Are we allowing our sin to be exposed by God's people, by God's Holy Spirit? But frankly, the Holy Spirit often works through the Word of God and people whose hearts and minds are filled with God's Word to point out sin in our lives, to expose our sin. So how are we dealing with that? You know, we're living in freedom if we can welcome the accountability and also when we are able to, to both confess, to agree, yes, this is sin, and then to repent, to, to turn away from it towards Christ and to move on when we become aware of sin in our lives. But listen, folks, if we shun the light of God's truth for fear of exposure, then, then we really aren't living according to the freedom from sin that Christ purchased for us through his sacrificial death. And there are many ways to hide from the light of God's truth regarding sin. Uh, we live in an age when it's, it's all too easy to find Christian leaders and churches who, who say nothing of sin or, or biblical scholars who find all sorts of ways to limit the applicability of God's word to our lives when it comes to issues of sin. And just to share a personal uh, reflection on that, I've had heartbreaking conversations with friends and fellow Christians who have gone one of those routes, who have shunned the light by going and finding a church leader that doesn't even talk about sin or, or going and finding a, a church that, that has bought into a, a way of interpreting Scripture that basically leaves sin out of the picture. But listen, this is important. Denying the possibility or the reality of sin, it's not the same thing as living in freedom from sin. It... it Denying the possibility or reality of sin cannot free us from sin, okay? It cannot remove that sense of guilt or shame, even though we act like it can and we disguise it, okay? Christ died, however, to set us free so that we can walk in freedom. And part of our membership commitment, we're going to do a membership class in September and early October. We'll provide more details later, but... Basically, one of our, our uh, membership commitments here at Wayside is to help each other live as people freed from sin. No matter how awkward, 
those conversations can be as we remind each other of, of the presence and reality of sin in our lives, the clear and present danger of sin that each one of us faces. Uh, yes, those conversations can get awkward, but yes, that's our responsibility to one another as uh, fellow members of the body of Christ in this particular local church body. But listen, we can't stop short at pointing out sin in each other's lives. We must also point each other to God's grace and to the freedom that we have in Christ. And this is exactly what we find in the rest of our passage today. Christ's sacrifice has once and for all freed us from sin. Uh, in, in the last part of our passage, verses 5 through 18, we see how the sacrificial death of Christ both proved his perfect submission to God, something we could never do, but it also shows how his sacrificial death provided us with a perfect salvation, a perfect eternal salvation. So let's look at those two things. First, Jesus' sacrifice, his sacrificial death, proved his perfect submission to God. Look at verses 5 through 9 with me. This is a fascinating passage. Uh, Therefore, the author to to the Hebrews writes, When he, that is Christ, comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you, he's talking to God the Father, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. And then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. And then after saying the above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, this whole sacrificial system, You have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. And then the author of Hebrews explains this. He says, He takes away the first in order to establish the second. So in this passage, the author is quoting from Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. Uh, This is... uh, considered a messianic psalm uh, by, by many, but the author to the Hebrews is taking the words from Psalm 40 and he's putting those words in the mouth of Christ himself, the, the, the greater son of David, the, the one who God had promised, the anointed one, the Messiah. He puts these words in Christ's mouth. And I've used this uh, passage actually in Psalm 40 before in Christmas sermons as a sort of a riddle Uh, And sometimes I'll ask the kids, uh, what's the last thing that God the Son said before coming to earth in the incarnation, before he became the baby in the manger? What was the last thing on the lips of God the Son? And these verses really succinctly state the, the reason for the incarnation. So that the Son of God could fulfill the Father's requirement for perfect submission to his will, perfect obedience, which is something, folks, none of us have ever been able to do. He did it. And as the author puts it, Christ takes away the first, that sacrificial system, which only reminds us of our inevitable disobedience and need for an innocent victim to die on our behalf. And he replaces it with his own perfect obedience, which can be credited to our account through faith in him. 
And this brings us to our second observation, that Christ's sacrifice provided us with a perfect salvation. And I love these verses that articulate this. Jesus paid the ultimate price for our eternal freedom from sin. We cannot miss this, okay? In verses 10 through 18, the author describes basically three facets of our freedom from sin, and they're all related to one another in different ways. But the three facets that we see in 10 through 18 are that his sacrificial death, uh, by his sacrificial death, we are purified or sanctified, we are perfected, and then we are also pardoned of our sins. So let's look at those. In verse 10, we see that the sacrifice of Christ has purified us for service. Look at verse 10. It says, by this will, meaning the will of Christ or the will of God, uh, Christ submitting to the will of God, this perfect submission, this perfect obedience. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Sanctified, that shows up in in many of our English translations, most of them, in fact. And that word for sanctification, I know you've heard it if you've been around the church long, but it, it means to be made holy to be consecrated, dedicated, set apart for special service to God. In Paul's writings, it can refer to the process of spiritual growth. Sometimes we talk about sanctification as a a progressive sanctification, a process where we increasingly grow in holiness and and being set apart to God uh, as sin is conquered in our lives on a day-to-day basis. But It's interesting here, uh, the author doesn't go that route that Paul goes. The author means here a once and for all change in our relationship with God. It's not a progressive sanctification. It's a once and for all uh, change in our status before God, our relationship with God, that he has consecrated us. He has made us holy so that we can draw near and stand before him to stand in his holy presence In other words, if you think about it, it, this is a reversal of the effect of sin going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 that that separated us from our holy God. This reverses that. And then in verses 11 through 14, we see that his sacrifice also perfects us. I love this language. Look at starting in verse 11. It says, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins, he repeats. But he, Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. That wonderful passage from Psalm 110, verse 1, that we saw earlier in Hebrews. He sat down having made one sacrifice for sins for all time at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. And then in verse 14, for by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are, who are sanctified or who are being sanctified. Twice in this passage, these four verses, the author says for all time. Christ offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, and he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified, made holy. Perfection is uh, such an important term in the book of Hebrews, and it generally means, and I think we've got a slide, but uh, one lexicon, which 
helps us understand the, the Greek terms here. Uh, one uh, looks at perfection as overcoming or supplanting uh, an imperfect state of things by one that is free from objection. There's nothing to object in this new status, okay? This new state of things has no objectionable aspect to it, okay? It has overcome uh, the imperfect, and, and now it is free of objection. And in other words, it's to bring something to its end, to bring to its goal or accomplishment, okay? Now, that's a mouthful, but in other words, when we accept the sacrifice of Christ by faith, people, we achieve God's goal for humanity, which is the removal of sin, which separates us from God, so that we can enjoy unrestricted access to God for the rest of eternity. It's God's plan for redemption that centers on the person and work of Jesus Christ. He wants to perfect us. And this access to God was was ultimately foreshadowed by the high priest, you know, going into the tabernacle and then later the temple. He would go into that inner holy of holies that we talked about a couple weeks ago. On the one day, one person, the high priest, only with the blood of animals covering his sins and the sins of the people, could he go into the presence of God in the holy of holies in the earthly tabernacle, okay? That foreshadowed the atonement that Christ would achieve for us. But, but, but that high priest wasn't able to stay for long because of the effects of sin. So he had to leave eventually. And even then, they would sometimes tie a rope to his ankle in case God struck him dead in his unholiness to, to pull him out without going in and offending the holiness of God. But, but Christ, when he went into the very presence of God in the heavenly holy of holies, he sat down having offered his one perfect sacrifice for sins for all time and having perfected for all time those who place their faith in him. It's like what he said from the cross, it is finished, and it was. Then in verses 15 through 18, these are our last four verses in our passage, these show us that his sacrifice also pardons us. And it says in 15, And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us. For after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. And he's talking about the new covenant. He says, I will put my laws upon their heart, and on their mind I will write them. He then says, And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, the author writes, where there is forgiveness of these things, these sins, there is no longer any offering for sin. We have no need of any offering beyond the one that Christ made on our behalf. And the author is repeating that prophecy of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, that we saw back in Hebrews chapter 8. And really, it's like a bookend for this entire section in chapters 8, 9, and 10. But that old Mosaic covenant that we've talked about several times has now been replaced by this new covenant that God had promised going all the way back to the Old Testament that ultimately provides forgiveness for sin. It's not a, it's not a shadow of the good things to come. It is the good things to come. It provides ultimate forgiveness for sin. And based on the sacrificial death of Christ for our sins, God pardons us. That's what he's saying in that passage is that we are pardoned in Christ. And he promises that he will not recall our sins in order to condemn us. 
Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. He says, therefore, it's John Rue. If you know John, it's his favorite passage in the Bible. It says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God promises that he's not going to take those sins back and use them to condemn you. You are pardoned in Christ. The sacrifice of Christ has pardoned us of our sins and has perfected and purified us in order to serve God and to stand in his holy presence, not just now, but but forever. Um, Back in verse 10, we saw that we are sanctified or, or made holy once and for all by the sacrificial death of Christ. And the verb tense, I'll nerd out just a little bit here, but the verb tense is, is telling us when it says are sanctified, it's telling us that that is a done deal. When we trust in Christ, we become holy to God, okay? Done deal. But then interestingly, when we get to verse 14, that same word shows up, that same verb, but the author uses it in the present tense in verse 14, which is suggesting that even though we have been made holy in terms of our position before God, positional holiness, Before God, in in the eyes of God, we have been made holy, set apart, concentrated for his purposes, consecrated for his purposes. We get that. But at the same time, we're also in this process of being made progressively more and more holy in this life, more and more godly, more and more um, conformed to God's nature, God's character, more Christ-like. And this is extremely important for us to understand as Christians in terms of living out our freedom from sin. We have to understand that we have been purified and perfected and pardoned of sin once and for all because of our faith in Jesus Christ. That is absolutely true. You can sink down deep into that in terms of an anchor for your soul, okay? But even though we as Christians now have this new nature in Christ that is freed from sin, We still have our old sinful nature hanging around. And I don't have to convince you of that. You know that from personal experience, as do I. Um, I was thinking about this and I thought about, just for illustrations purposes, someone in our family recently uh, very courageously and very compassionately decided to donate their kidney for a friend whose kidney disease would otherwise be terminal. Both of his kidneys are completely uh, shut down. And when he goes in for this procedure next week down in Houston, that they will transplant his one of his healthy kidneys into his friend's body. But they, and this is strange because I didn't know this, but they're going to leave the old dysfunctional kidneys in there as well. They're not going to remove his old broken kidneys, okay? Uh, so, so his friend is actually going to have three kidneys, one that works perfectly and then two that don't work at all in his body. And and I think this is a good illustration of our freedom from sin. We have a new nature in Christ that is freed from sin. It it is purified and perfected and pardoned of sin. But we also have our old sinful nature, which Paul calls the flesh or the old man, which is in bondage to sin and can only produce the fruit of sin. That's all it can produce. But thankfully, Christ sacrificed himself so that we can live in the freedom of that new nature in Christ through the power of his indwelling Holy Spirit, rather than simply living in bondage to sin through our old nature, which we've all experienced that. It's terrible. 
Today's passage tells us that Christ came into the world to do the will of God. And for him, that meant perfect obedience, even to the point of suffering and death on a cross. You know, as Christians, we are called by Christ himself to also deny ourselves and to take up our cross and to follow him, that that's what Christian discipleship is at the end of the day. It's to follow him in living self-sacrificial lives for God's glory and for the good of others. And you know, the only thing that's going to keep us from doing God's will, from submitting to God's will in that way, is sin. So where is sin keeping you from living in freedom to serve God and ultimately to, to serve others in order to serve God like Christ? Are you in bondage to a false god this morning that produces lust or greed? I've had some conversations in the last couple weeks, and and we struggle with those things. Uh, Are you in bondage to a false god that promises satisfaction but will just leave you empty on the back end? Or uh, a feeling of powerlessness or helplessness or hopelessness in this life? I was in a residency, pastoral residency program before I, we planted Wayside, and my pastor, who was over me in that residency, would always tell me, like, you got to wake up every morning and preach the gospel to yourself. Before you get up and preach the gospel to everyone else, you need to be reminded of the truth of the gospel. And that's what I would have for you this morning. Just keep going back to the truth of the gospel, which we can see so clearly in today's passage. I don't have to artificially try and you know, wedge the gospel in today's passage. It's all over today's passage. So keep going back to the truth of the the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection that conquered sin and death for us, that, that opened up the way to forgiveness, access to God, eternal life in God's holy presence. If you've trusted in Christ, then you have once and for all been freed from the bondage of sin You've been purified, you've been perfected, and you have been pardoned by the blood of Jesus Christ our Lord. And uh, even though we aren't taking communion today because this is an online-only service, I want to conclude, I want to leave you with the words of Jesus on the eve of his crucifixion. I think this is appropriate. Through his sacrificial death, he transformed the Passover meal which was an annual reminder of sin and the requirement of sacrifice, blood to cover us so that we wouldn't face God's destruction, God's judgment. It was an annual reminder of that reality. And he took that Passover meal and he transformed it into what we know as the Lord's Supper, as communion, which is a constant reminder of our freedom from sin in Christ. And in doing so and transforming that, The one into the other, Jesus commanded, do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. As one scholar pointed out, the the gospel shifts the meaning of that Greek word for remembrance. It shifts it from a remembrance of guilt, which is what you see with the sacrificial system, to a remembrance of God's grace as we look back on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So instead of sacrificing animals in anticipation of the ultimate final sacrifice for sin that God ultimately provided provided in Christ, we can now sacrifice ourselves as Christ did in this life as an act of worship in appreciation 
for this incredible freedom from sin that we've been given through faith in Jesus. And as the final stanza, which we did not sing, uh, it would have been too long probably, but the final stanza of Robert Lowry's hymn, you know, Nothing But the Blood of Jesus, goes like this. He says, Glory, glory, this I sing, nothing but the blood of Jesus. All my praise for this I bring, nothing but the blood of Jesus. We brothers and sisters in Christ, people that are on the call that have never trusted in Christ. There is freedom from sin in Christ. So let's live like free people. Let's praise and glorify God in everything that we do as we follow our Lord and Savior. Um, Next week, we are going to begin the third major section of Hebrews. Uh, and, And this is a major division between chapter 10, verse 18 and chapter 10, verse 19. And it really gets exciting in terms of just the application of what we've been learning in these great teaching sections. And so I hope you'll track with us through the end of August as we explore these these last couple chapters in Hebrews. Uh, But we will start looking at uh, what it looks like to live in light of our freedom in Christ and how that plays out in the rest of the book. So I look forward to that. Let's pray.